Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name is Devraga and I'm your host and in this episode we have a Q&A session from listeners and remember if you want a question answered specifically on the show don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or on Facebook. Let's get started. If you want a specific topic discussed or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or on Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. Now, the first question comes from Maria, who asks, how can we teach our kids investment skills? Now, this is a great question and I get asked this question quite a lot online. But I think one of the best ways kids learn many things in their life, including things about money and investing, is through passive learning. Kids absorb things they see. So if you're irresponsible with your money, that's what they see. If you're frugal with your money, that's what they see. How you drive, how you talk, how you treat others, how you eat. Everything is watched and learnt by your children. So when it comes to money, life skills and investments things are not that much more different. In this case, Maria has not mentioned how old her kids are because it really depends on the age of children and how much detail you want to teach them. I strongly recommend not to push kids to learn about investing too early in their lives because they can be really put off by it. So here's what not to do. Don't force them to learn anything they don't want to, especially during a very young age. And I think it's really important that parents don't treat money skills as some of a school-based lesson because it can be really off-putting. Kids need to learn about money, and that's important, so let's go through some of the ages to spark some interest. Now, ages 3 to 10. I think this age is when kids really need to learn about money as a concept. They need to know that everything costs money. This means when you go shopping or go out to restaurants or buy things for them, They need to see that it costs money. Kids need to learn that that money comes from your hard work. You don't need to drum it into them, but as they get older, when you do some shopping, perhaps kids can learn about differentiating the prices. For example, you might be shopping for some ice cream at Coles or Woolies, and it's probably worthwhile teaching your children why some ice cream costs more and let them decide which ice cream they want based on the cost and quality. This gives them an opportunity to learn how to compare costs, how to compare value, how to compare products. One of the things I tried to teach my kids is the per 100 gram tag on the cost of the item. Very quickly, my eldest figured out that this was an easy comparison tool and sometimes buying in bulk doesn't actually equate to cheaper costs. Now, during this age group, I don't think we need to go too much into investing, but we need to teach kids the value of money. This may mean paying them for household chores in addition to their usual chores. 
We make it a point that vacuuming their room or making their bed is not a chore, but an expectation, so they don't get extra money for this. But washing the car or doing the gardening or weeding or trimming the plants, sure, we can negotiate some extra money. This gives them a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility, and part of this is allowing them to spend that money. There are plenty of apps which are available for parents to pay their children. Spriggy is one such pocket money app. Now, I don't believe in free pocket money. Nothing of that sort. Ages 10 to 18, it's a very, very big spread here. This is their critical years of studying before finishing up with high school. And during these years, it's completely acceptable for discussing the household finances in the presence of kids. And this includes conversations of what is affordable and what is not. For example, we can travel overseas this summer vacation, but probably have to compromise on the type of hotel we stay due to the extra cost of airfares due to the high inflationary pressures. That is something that I've told my family and my children. For example, we are unable to have grand birthday celebrations this year if we're planning a holiday during Christmas New Year period. For example, for us to be able to afford sending both children to private school, it means we will need to sacrifice on at least one holiday per year for the next five to eight years. These are all conversations that you can have with your children between the age of 10 and 18 because they need to understand the value of money. During their middle school and high school, some curriculums of topics on economics and money, etc., etc. I think it's worthwhile introducing them to these electives actively seeking out because some of your children may be interested in them, but please, if they're not interested, this is not the right time. They may wish to subscribe to authentic YouTube channels or podcasting material, including this about money or investing. And one of the things that I like to always say to my kids is, make sure rather than eating at McDonald's, for example, you own a piece of McDonald's. Teaching kids about the pay yourself mentality is really useful during these years. And of course, if you do it yourself and you teach them, They learn from you because kids are largely passive learners. Now, rather than spending the pay-yourself money, it's worthwhile discussing the basics of companies, the basics of bonds and the basics of index funds, property and some of the pros and cons. The maturity of kids who are 10 versus the maturity of kids that are 14, 15, 16 or 18 is very different. So some of these conversations are suitable only after the age of 14 or even 16. The biggest mistake I see parents making or wanting to make is pushing money topics too early, too fast and too intensely, which can really put your kids off. I also think it's useful for kids to find out if you've been successful with money and investing or find out some of your mistakes when it comes to investing. So it's okay to be transparent and explain to them that some of your wins, but also some of your losses. Learning my mistakes is really useful. So don't let your mistakes or wins go to waste. Here are some of the concepts kids need to understand or learn before they graduate high school. Number one, the power of pay yourself first. That is critical. Number two, the power of compounding. Number three, I used to play this game of start with one cent on January the 1st and then tell me how much money you'll have as it doubles every day at the end of January. They loved it. Because at the end of January they would come to about $10 million. That's how much money they would have. And it's incredible. Even now, when I think about the power of compounding, it's literally like magic. But no one would get that answer correct, including me when I first found out. They need to know the difference between investing and gambling. 
it's really important to drill this home to kids. They need to know what dollar cost averaging is and the power of long-term wealth creation. So you need to show them some charts. They need to know what superannuation is. Yeah, it's kind of early for them, but teach them how useful it can be, particularly the difference between tax-advantaged accounts and tax-normal accounts. Taxes. We need to be realistic and teach kids about taxes, why we pay them, what it pays for, and why it's useful to live in a society which utilises taxes for the greater good of society. Don't say stupid things like, taxes is like theft. This just sets a negative connotation that contribution to society is not useful. We all have a responsibility to contribute to the services we use day in, day out. And we all have a responsibility and have a responsibility to support the people that are in need because they may not have the inherent advantages that you and I have. There are plenty of opportunities for parents to create investing accounts for their kids. So I won't go into that here. Now, we've discussed a lot in this topic, but here's the hierarchy that you should be following. Number one, they've got to learn about the concept of money early in life. Number two, they've got to learn about work, where money comes from, how you make money. Number three, they need to learn about expenses. Keep it low. Number four, they've got to learn about spending, the difference between price and value. Then, number five, and only then, learn about investing and the main concepts. Now, I've done many of these episodes I've created are suitable for children over the age of 14 to 16 or older. Maria, I hope this has been useful. Take it easy, take it slow. And remember, most children learn things passively, not actively. Now, the next question comes from Ray, who asks, what is a defined benefits scheme within super? Interesting question. I've covered this one in one of my previous episodes, but we'll go through it again in this episode. If you open a super account nowadays, you will likely end up with an accumulation fund. But things were very different back in the day, when super wasn't compulsory. Super only became compulsory workplace entitlement in the 90s, thanks to the Keating government. Prior to that, it was really employer dependent. And prior to that, if you had a super account, it would have been called a defined benefit scheme. It's extremely difficult to open an account like that moving forward. Now, this is from the Productivity Commission of 2018, and I quote, Super began in 1862 with the establishment of a defined benefit pension fund for the employees at the Bank of New South Wales, and superannuation followed this model for the next 100 years, where the defined benefit pension funds were established for a minority of employees who were generally higher-paid white-collar employees in the private sector, or civil servants in the public sector. In fact, in many countries even today, defined benefits funds are the norm. And some might even say they offer some significant benefits over the current accumulation-style funds. So can you get a defined benefits super fund nowadays? You can, but they're not very common, and it's usually reserved for public sector employees. And even then, not even sure if new accounts are possible. Some of the remaining ones, and not even sure if they're still active, is... Telstra Super, Qantas Super, Ozpost Super, Westpac Group Plan Defined Benefits Scheme, Commonwealth Superannuation Fund, Military Superannuation and Benefits Fund, Public Sector Superannuation Scheme, Gold State Super, which is only in WA, and West State Super, which is only in WA. To understand Defined Benefits Fund, we need to understand how accumulation funds work. 
Your employer and your, yourself contribute to the superannuation. And within the super, you choose an investment option. Within that investment option is fees and taxes and a level of risk. And over time, it hopefully compounds and returns. And eventually upon preservation age, you can withdraw the funds and use it as you please. Notice in this case, your super fund or employer do not take any risk. It is you who takes the risk of losing your investment as you retire, especially if there's a market downturn. This is very different to a defined benefits fund, which we will discuss next. Now to the defined benefits fund. What's the difference? In this sort of fund, your retirement amount is not dependent on your income or investment earnings, whereas in accumulation funds, it kind of depends on these factors. Because the more you earn, the more money you can actually shovel to your superannuation fund. But in defined benefits funds, your employer is required to contribute regularly towards the defined benefit you will receive during your retirement. The employer contributions, however, are not contributed to your account uniquely, but rather into a defined benefit pool from which the defined benefits are derived for members of that pool. So what you receive when you retire in a defined benefit fund is entirely dependent on the formula in the trust deeds of the superannuation fund, which can be different between the different funds. And this formula varies between individual defined benefits funds, so there is no standard formula. So what parameters are considered when deriving the final retirement defined benefit fund? Number one, how much your employer has contributed. Number two, how much you've contributed. Number three, how long you've worked for your super. And number four, your final average salary when you retire. Now the exact formula varies between funds. So let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is working in the public sector and is part of a defined benefits fund scheme called ABC. And in a fund, the final retirement benefit sum is based on the number of years she has served the sector. And she served, let's say, 30 years. This amounts, according to the fund ABC, and that's very specific, six times final salary as a lump sum or 80% of a final salary as a monthly pension until her death. Notice in this case, your employer or defined benefits fund takes the risk of investment losses and not yourself. So if Amy retires during a market downturn, she has financial security because she will still get a defined benefit as instructed by the calculator, which the fund has to use to calculate it for her. This is one of the many reasons why defined benefits funds are closed to new members, because essentially, in the past, employers and the funds themselves take on the risk. So if the market declines and Amy is still protected, and it's still up to the employer to fund and top up the loss of income for Amy. Whereas in today's superannuation funds, it would have been completely up to Amy to take that risk. Within defined benefits funds, there are three main subtypes. Number one, funded defined benefit fund, often called corporate super funds. Number two is unfunded defined benefit fund, older public sector funds, or including constitutionally protected funds, and I've done an episode on this in the past. And number three, at a bit of a hybrid super fund, provides a defined benefit fund, but also allows accumulation fund on the side. So what are the pros of defined benefits funds? Your future is kind of secure. Your employer, your super fund is responsible for providing a fixed income in your retirement. And this means less work for you to check on investments. It eliminates worry about future investment performance. It also allows a guaranteed payout figure based on clear formulas, which is hopefully transparent. The payout amount, if not affected by market fluctuations, and there's no need to select an investment option for your super investments. But it's not all rosy. There are some bad things about defined benefit schemes. 
You can't switch funds and have all the same benefits as formulas will change between the funds. You have no say in how the super fund asset pool is invested. It's a pooled fund concept, so not an individual account concept. And your benefit, if not adjusted for inflation, this completely depends on your super fund, so please check this phenomenon. The fund rules and calculations may differ by the time you retire, the so-called changing the goalpost phenomenon, and because you can't choose your investment option, you may be able to get a better return in an accumulation fund, which has a lot more options. So is it a good idea to move your defined benefit fund to an accumulation fund? Before you do anything, please speak to a superannuation specialist. You may find a lot of the older defined benefits funds have pretty good insurance coverage and rules and regulations, and you may be losing out if you switch to an accumulation fund. And also, if you're under the age of 60, there are some tax implications too. So please, please, please don't do anything rash and check with your super professional for advice. It's literally your life savings. Now, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will go through the topic of income protection insurance. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, welcome back. Now, the next question is question three from Jazz, who asks about, Dev, can you please discuss about income protection? Now, I've covered income protection insurance and concepts before, but there have been a lot of changes in this area since 2020. In fact, I was speaking to someone over the phone and they weren't aware that changing their income protection may actually change their restrictions and benefits because of the changes, because their original income protection was many, many years ago prior to 2020, and now they want to upgrade. And I said, well, before you do anything, make sure you get specialist advice because that changes everything. So let's discuss the overall concept of income protection basics again. What is income protection insurance, often called disability insurance in other countries? Basically, you pay a premium for an insurance product such that if you can't work due to a medical illness, the insurer will pay you a monthly benefit, which can be used to pay your bills and aid your recovery. The medical illness can be temporary or permanent or can be an injury. 
And it's important to note that I'm not going into the details of other types of personal insurance like life, TPD or trauma or critical illness insurance because that is such a huge topic and it's beyond the scope of this question. But the amount of money paid out as a monthly benefit in income protection insurance depends on your monthly salary and it's paid out until a certain time period or you reach a certain age depending on your policy terms and conditions. And typically, income protection will cover people who are not covered under, say, TAC, which is a Transport Accident Commission, or work cover compensation claims. Now, TAC is what we call uh, Transport Accident Commission in Victoria. I think in your state or territory, you may have a very similar scheme. Now, income protection insurance is not the same as sick leave benefits, which your employer may provide as well, or be confused, don't be confused with redundancy insurance. That's completely separate. I'll talk about it more in this episode a bit later. So income protection and sick leave benefits and redundancy insurance, completely different concepts. So how does income protection work? Let's use an example. Amy is a 41-year-old nurse and recently she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. And as part of the treatment cycle, she's likely not to be able to work for up to 12 months. She requires neoadjuvant chemotherapy, maybe some radiotherapy, then plans for stereotactic surgery, then adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant radiotherapy. She has a very long road ahead of her, and she has a supportive husband who's a civil engineer. She also has two children aged 12 and 10 years old, both in their local public school. Now, if Amy does not have income protection insurance, she may have some sick leave balance left at her workplace, which she can utilise, but this may not be much. Once the sick leave expires, Amy luckily has income protection insurance, which covers up to 75% of her monthly wage based on the last one to two years of income. Now, with respect to some income protection insurance, there are some key terms we need to define. Number one is indemnity. What does that mean? Indemnity type policy. Basically, providers cover up to an agreed percentage of a policyholder's salary and it has caps on it. Agreed value policy is a second concept. These are no longer offered, but were offered prior to April 2020. And basically, no matter what your wage is, it just meant that you'll be covered up to the agreed amount. Again, I won't talk about this at all because it's no longer offered. There's no point. So basically, you only have the indemnity policy available. So why is an agreed value policy no longer offered? Why did they change it? To cut a long story short, basically insurance providers were hemorrhaging money and realized the industry is not viable if agreed value policies were given out left, right and center. So the whole profit sectors, they cut them out. There's a lot more to this, but if you're interested, Google it and read about it. But that comes down to these are private entities that are providing insurance products. They can't be hemorrhaging money. It just wasn't sustainable for agreed value policies anymore. So if you have one, consider yourself lucky. Now, once you get your policy, there are two ways to structure your insurance premiums. The first way is called stepped premiums. So this is when premiums rise every year in line of the person's age and yearly renewal. The second way is level premiums. It's not linked to person's age or renewal terms, but may still increase over time depending on the claims paid out by the insurance company and other factors like inflation. In addition to these two factors, there are some more definitions to know about. Number one, the benefit amount. This is the amount of money which would be paid to you if you made a claim. Usually this can be up to 75% of your monthly salary, which is calculated based on your average salary over the last 12 months or two years, depending on the policy terms and conditions of your company. And usually there's a cap on this. Remember, insurance providers always make the money, right? But getting insurance, you will lose money. Buy statistics. 
they make the money. You will lose money because the chances are you won't need to claim on your insurance. And if you need to claim income protection insurance, it means something bad has happened. The higher the benefit amount, the more premiums you will pay. Number two is benefit period. You can make your income protection for a set number of years or make it until your retire age of 65. Now, the latter is more expensive because the older you get, the more likely you're going to be claiming insurance. Generally speaking, though, as you become older, you have less dependence and less commitments and less debt. So you may not need income protection to the same extent as your younger days. Number three is waiting period. With income protection, you won't get monthly benefit immediately after an illness or injury has been diagnosed. And usually there is a waiting period, which can be up to six months, but usually starts at the 30-day mark, but it can even be shorter. The shorter the waiting period, the higher the premiums. But also consider if you have loads of sick leave, especially if you're in public service or in private service where you're eligible for sick leave, you may not need a short waiting period for income protection because your sick leave will protect you a little bit more. But if you're self-employed, guess what? You don't get sick leave. So a lot of doctors that are listening to this that are private practitioners, you might need a shorter waiting period when you're applying or reviewing your income protection premiums. Number four is partial benefit cover. This is when you may not be out work full time, but you may be able to return to part-time work. And this means part-time wage and the rest is supplemented by the income protection benefit. Note, this is an optional cover and not always included. So it's always worth asking about. So why have income protection insurance? It's vital to be able to pay your bills, live your life while you recover from a medical illness. In Amy's example, she's going to be off work for 12 months battling breast cancer. She won't have 12 months of sick leave, very unlikely. So she needs to be able to support her family in addition to her husband's income to pay all the relevant bills. So it's a peace of mind factor. Without insurance, Amy may be in a position to substantially reduce her living standards and also draw down on their investments or super accounts in order to pay the bills and also the emergency funds. Now, she has two young children who also need support. If you become unwell and have bills to pay, you can negotiate with debtors, but this is the last thing you want to do while trying to recover from an illness and trying to manage a family and look after two young kids. Can you imagine Amy and her husband trying to negotiate her bills while trying to go through surgery, chemo, radiation, caring, two kids? It's not really practical. And even if she goes through the public system for all her health care, which is free cost to her, the public health system will not pay her personal bills. And this is why income protection insurance is really important to consider. So what's the eligibility criteria? It's important to understand that not everyone is insurable. The insurance company will want to lower their risk pool by taking on younger and more healthier people so they can hold enough funds to pay for more older and sicker people when they make the claims. You will need to do some basic health and lifestyle questionnaires when you sign up, maybe some bloods, and have a medical examination prior to any insurance contract to be finalised. Unfortunately, insurers are very careful. If they spot anything in your medical reports that's a potential liability for them, they will crank up that premium like there is no tomorrow and may place lifelong exclusions on that condition. So in Amy's case, if she had a rare genetic condition called BRCA gene prior to her breast cancer, her insurer may say you're not insurable for all of her breast cancer or not insurable at all. So getting insurance when you're younger and healthier before any such diagnoses is ideal. 
to reduce your premiums. But it just means you're less likely to claim, which is a good thing. Like I say, if you're claiming on insurance, it means something bad has happened to you. So what sort of things does income protection insurance cover? It covers medical illnesses that are major, which require a significant period of time off work. It covers any major surgery, any trauma or injury, which is non-work or road trauma related, and any sporting accidents which club insurance has not provided. And what sort of things does income protection not cover? Number one, it doesn't cover minor ailments like cold and flu. Number two, most insurance companies won't cover self-harm efforts. Some of them won't cover any mental health at all, which is really disappointing when you think about it, because mental health is a big burden on health in general. Number three, as a result of protest or civil unrest or war, if you get injured, you're not covered. Number four is normal pregnancy and childbirth. This is contentious, as you'll need to check on this. What if someone has a major postpartum hemorrhage, which requires concurrent hysterectomy and blood transfusions and complicated recovery periods? You need to specifically ask your insurance provider about that. Number five is pre-existing conditions. Number six is workers' compensation or road trauma insurance. And number seven is any loss of job or redundancies. If you're not sick, you can't claim income protection insurance. How much income protection do you need? It's a very personal question. It's hard to put a figure on it, but here are the things to consider. Number one is how much savings do you have? Number two is how many dependents do you have? Number three is what's your debt and bills and liability situation? Number four is health risk. Number five is investments you have, which are liquid. Number six is cost of the premiums and potential rises in premiums. Recently, there's been massive rises in premiums. And how do you buy income protection insurance? You can buy it direct from companies that offer them, so-called outside of super, or you can buy it through a broker, or you can go and buy it through your superannuation. Now, I won't go through each of these options as it's beyond the scope of this episode. Now, is the cost of the premium that you pay every month tax deductible? Number one, yes, it is. Unlike life insurance, TPD or trauma insurance, income protection insurance premiums are tax deductible because you're using your after-tax money to pay for it. But if you have it within your superannuation account, it's not really tax deductible. This is because funds are used to paying the premiums from a tax-advantaged account anyway. And this also means if you can claim any benefit, then you need to include it in your tax return. And unfortunately, any benefits are also taxable. Now, I did say that I'll talk about redundancy insurance earlier, but this episode is getting a little bit too much. So if you want any information specifically about redundancy insurance, let me know. But otherwise, I might have to cover it in a different episode. That's it for this episode. Hopefully, that is enough information for all of the questions, particularly the income protection one. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast and please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga and this is My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.